If you're new here, you've stepped into a, a fairly we, unique uh, three-week segment in, in which we've been taking questions over a period of about six weeks. There were questions that were sent in, about 80 questions came in, and uh, can't obviously get to all of them. We've done our best to do that. Obviously, questions lead to more questions, and, and how we address them always stimulates more thinking, but um, I, I just want to be very clear. When we address these questions, this is not information for the sake of information. This is about building a stronger body, a stronger community of believers. So we don't just leave here with a, a bunch of facts. There's a temptation that this can feel kind of academic. Um, that's the last thing I want. Uh, I want really to reach into this so that we understand God's Word speaks, and it speaks truth. And so if we're looking for answers to understand Him better and His ways, we look to His Word for the answers. So I want to pray with you to that end, that God's Spirit would lead and guide us and give us uh, direction. One detail, though, that I'm going to pray about in the midst of this is uh, some of you are very familiar with what Cindy Sodden is going through. Uh, Cindy's a young woman here in our church who is at the University of Michigan Hospital and is literally battling for her life. Um, Had a, a blood infection on top of all things set in back on Wednesday along with everything else that she's been struggling with. But I just got a text from uh, Craig this morning saying that it looks like the blood infection is being conquered and the antibiotics are kicking in. And so the doctors who were pessimistic about her even living three days ago are now beginning to say, okay, it looks like we're really getting a foothold here. So um, it just in the time that we're sitting here this morning, God's bringing some activity in her life. We're not sure what, but we want to pray specifically about that too. So would you join me in those two things about Cindy and about God leading us through His Word? Let's pray. Father, we come before You recognizing that You are the great I Am. And there is nothing that catches You by surprise and You are not um, losing control of any situation. Rather, we are quick to declare that you have a hand in what is going on in Cindy's life. And so we lift Cindy Sodden up to you and ask that you would bring healing. We ask that you would bring deliverance according to your purposes and your plans for her life. Father, if you want to use her to amaze the doctors, do so. But we ask that you be glorified in the midst of this. And I thank you for her strong walk and for Craig and for the witness that they have even in that hospital. I pray specifically, this, this entire body lifts Craig up and asks that you would strengthen him in the midst of watching his spouse go through this. And Father, we ask specifically that you would rescue her from the threshold of death and that you would bring her back. But more than that, we ask that you would accomplish your purpose. We also ask, Father, that you would guide us as we work through your word now, that you give us insight. Maybe someone coming in this morning that's confused on some of these questions that your Holy Spirit would be that we would uh, lean into you, that we would learn from you, and that you would be our guide. We would ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, the very first question that came up on your list is related to a, a young boy in the Amazon jungle. I'm going to save that question, move it towards the end, and get into the Bible apologetics questions first. And if we run out of time, just know I'm not going to ignore that one. Somebody at the last service, I ran out of time, and they said, you're going to answer that one, aren't you? Well, yeah, I'll bring that back next week if we run out of time. But if, if, if we're able to, I'll get to it today. Um, let's go into the apologetics. And apologetics is just a big $10 word for Bible study, okay? The defense of the faith or interpretation of God's word. Here's the, here's the couple questions that came along with it. Okay, we get into a conversation with a non-believer. 
How can we defend our faith and why we believe? Second one, Jesus often spoke in parables. Do we take every book of the Bible literally or are some figurative? I think of Job where God allowed for so much of Job's life to be ruined, including the brutal death of his family. Is it okay to see this as a parable? At your darkest moment, God is still with those who are faithful and not a historical account. Third question, we're taught from the beginning to read our Bible so we can learn, grow, get answers, develop a better understanding, and have a relationship with God. What's the correct way to actually read, learn, and while taking into account its context and meaning without tainting it by our understanding, culture, and perceptions? And fourth and last one related to this category, someone I know consistently rejects the Word of God. They say the Bible is sexist towards women, that they are held to a lower standard than men. Often quoted is 1 Timothy, 1 Corinthians, Genesis, and especially 1 Peter. I pray that the Holy Spirit find them and give them resolve, but each time I try to engage that person, these verses are what they focus on. Thanks for taking it easy on me, by the way, and giving me really easy <laughs> questions. Okay. Appreciate that. Have you read the other questions that are coming up, especially the ones to end times issues? Um, this has been a, a, a very interesting journey for me. Uh, matter of fact, I just want to tell you that because of the response of the church towards this, I'm convicted that we need to do this at least once a semester. So I'm going to try and do this again in February, somewhere in that period of time. Um, but to speak specifically to this, first of all, the authority of God's Word and how can you know. Um, back in 2009, we're going to throw this one up on the screen, um, there is a message that I taught specifically on the issue of God's Word and the authority of God's Word. It's called a destiny message. And it was taught in February of 2009. If you go on our website, you can pull that up. And it's full of facts and statistics about how can you know that what you have in your hands is legitimate. How do you know that it's really real? If you're not interested in something quite that in-depth, here's a simple little book that you can pick up, either on Amazon or any, any website, I suppose, that sells books, but also at the Christian bookstore. And this one is called, Is the Bible True Really? Is the Bible True Really? And it's written by a guy by the name of Josh McDowell. It's very short, as you can see. It'd probably take you two hours to read it. It's set in a coffee shop in a college campus in Texas. And it's a dialogue between college students about the information of the Bible. If you're interested in something like that, it's got facts in it, but it's got a lot of drama in it too. So it might be of interest to you. When we take these four questions, we can obviously see there's, there's a link here. There's a theme going through each of these about knowing and trusting or believing God's Word. So let me take one that's kind of a standalone by itself, and that's the second one. It said, Jesus often spoke in parables. Do we take every book of the Bible literally or are some figurative? And then uses the reference of Job. Most people who do not want to take the Bible literally lean into the book of Job because they don't want to believe that that would actually be something that God would allow to have happen to someone's life. And so they really struggle with the reality of what's going on in Job's life. Very quickly, you can see if you've read the book of Job, and if you haven't, I highly encourage you to spend some time in it, reading about what's the information in the book of Job. You'll see that Job's friends try to defend God. They try their very best effort to explain why the things that are going on in Job's life are going on. I'm here to tell you this morning, God does not need you to defend him. Hear me on that? He doesn't. God doesn't need you to get his back. He's completely self-sufficient on his own. And so when you read the book of Job, you see these individuals who are trying to justify or explain or understand why God's doing what he's doing. And by the time you get to chapter 40, God shows up on the scene 
And he says, who are these guys speaking without knowledge? They're trying to explain things they know nothing about. And then he turns his attention to Job and he says, stand up and I will question you and you will answer me. Brace yourself like a man. Now, that's how God deals with Job in the book of Job, but he's also very gentle with him. So here's the temptation. When we see some things crumbling in a person's world, we look at the book of Job and we want to say, God would never treat someone that way. And we miss the bigger principle. The book of Job is all about God getting his glory and declaring who he is. So me personally, you may not approach it this way. I take the book of Job literally as a historical account, something that factually happened to someone. Matter of fact, I take all the books of the Bible literally. Now, are there parables in the Bible? Yes. Is there analogy in the Bible? Yes. But to say one book of the Bible is completely a parable, I can't approach it that way myself personally. So I would answer that question by saying no. Now, when we come into these other three, when they're linked into understanding the authority of God's word, I'm going to answer it this way. and I want you to just get comfortable with this phrase, the word absolutes. We believe in the absolutes at New Hope of God's unchanging word. That it is a, it's a foundation we stand on. So as you look at this question, of, specifically I'll pull out this one about the word of God being sexist towards women. And the passages that you read there that this individual has stated, and these are passages that other individuals lean into for the same reason, in those passages, God never said women are less accountable. God never said women are less intelligent. God never said women are less anything. As a matter of fact, what he did do, he's merely asking man to step up to the plate, and by that I mean male. He's asking men to step up the plate and carry the load of spiritual leadership. So when an individual would like to take shots at the Bible and say it's extremely sexist, I know right away they've got a cultural framework of a Western way of thinking. They're trying to impose something on the Bible that the Bible is not imposing upon itself. There's something much, much bigger going on here than an argument of whether or not the Bible is sexist. This is my view. The Bible rises above culture. It is not shaped by culture. The Bible rises above it. It's not shaped by it. Yet it speaks to culture. So God says, conform your thoughts to my ways, not vice versa, trying to make the Bible fit into our cultural environment. As a matter of fact, when it comes to the issue of the Bible being sexist, I will tell you that the value of women in the Bible is greatly heightened, not lessened. The Bible's written at a period of time when women were viewed as a piece of furniture. Believe it or not, that was how women were viewed at this period of time. And so women are elevated in the Bible. But let's come back to this particular issue. Is the Bible sexist towards women? We'll just use this as an example because someone asked, how do we read the Bible in a way that it's not tainted by our cultural views? Well, let's take this particular issue. The entire framework for the position of men and women is affected by the fall. So deal with this issue first. God created man first. Tracking with me? I mean, you want the ultimate sexist statement? The males were made first, all right? Just get comfortable with that because there's more coming. Now, God created man first, and then we're told he created woman as a helpmeet. Now, that doesn't mean that a woman is a servant. That's not the way the biblical definition applies itself to this. The word help me means something different than what you're thinking, if that's what you're thinking. 
So when you come to the Bible and you see that God created man first, someone would say, well, how sexist of God that he would create males before females. That sounds, Mark, like you're saying that Eve had no shot whatsoever of being the CEO of the Garden of Eden. Okay? I mean, framework, okay, put it in the cultural environments of which, which we live in 2014. Let's get to the heart of the matter. How did God view men and women, and how does he view them today? God placed Adam and Eve in a position of equal authority over everything that he had created, giving them status as rulers. Look with me on the screen at Genesis 1.27. God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over every living thing. Everything that God had created and said, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's very good. Man and woman are equal rulers over all that God had given them authority over. But then a transition takes place because sin enters the world and there's the fall of man and the ranking of authority changes and for the very first time, we're told that woman's desire is pronounced in a way that had not been seen before sin. It's changed with the presence of sin and something called spiritual headship is announced. Look with me now at Genesis 3.16. This is the curse. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children. Women here today could say this is the Bible being very accurate, right? Okay. And then it says, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Talk about a tense moment in time. Everything has changed. This is God pronouncing the curse. Leadership has now been pronounced. What you're looking at in Genesis 3 is a restructuring of God's originally intended order. Consequences for decisions that were made with temporal effects. And why do I say temporal? Because we understand when the return of the king takes place, when Jesus returns, the order is reversed. God says he's going to restore everything to the way that it was originally intended. But until then, we live every single day with the realities of the fall. So every time you watch a battle take place in society to attempt to reverse what God pronounced, what you're watching is this constant reminder to you of, we live in a fallen world. We do. We just live in a fallen world. We groan. We struggle. And creation wants the order reversed. We want the curse changed. But until then, we wait and we live with the reality of what God pronounced to be true. So that's just one way that our cultural environs taint how we view the Bible. God said it was this way, but now it's this way because of sin. Let's move forward to the next question. Is there any way to help someone accept the Bible for what it says? Many chalk it up to fiction and have never heard that it is not fiction. My experience first, you've got somebody like that in your life, it begins with prayer. It really does. It begins with prayer and the work of the Holy Spirit because you can't draw someone. Only God can draw someone. Even Jesus had hundreds of people following him who abandoned him. Because they said this to him, what you say is too hard. 
We can't follow you anymore. Paul experienced the same thing. Mars Hill, arguing with the intellects of the day who literally laughed him out of the auditorium because what they said, what you're saying is foolishness. Who has ever heard that a man would rise from the dead? So you're not the first to encounter that. Individuals have struggled with that for generations. But I'd be very quick to tell you, if I only had the book of Romans, matter of fact, if, if I only had the book of Romans chapter 1 and chapter 2, you can lead anybody to an understanding of God and who they are in the eyes of God. You can do this yourself. I'm going to take you through a very simple five-minute exercise that will help you to explain the Bible to people so that they can accept it for what it says because they live with the reality of some of the things you're about to see every single day. Let's approach it this way, and I told you I'm going to come back to the word absolutes. So keep that word in your mind. Here's the debate in society. The debate in society is not whether or not truth is absolute. The debate in society is rather who gets to define truth. It's not whether or not there is truth, it's who gets to define it. Matter of fact, if you'd like to read a little bit more about this, go to an author I greatly respect, one of my heroes, his name is Walt Henriksen. He wrote on the issue of absolutes. And you want somebody who's going to take you down the mine shaft into deep theology? Read Walt Henriksen. Excellent, excellent material. Here, here's the argument. Liberal universities, just to put it in our context, in, in today's world, liberal universities allow students to participate in all forms of deviant lifestyle behavior. Now you hear the word that I just used, deviant. I've made a presupposition, right? Liberal universities allow individuals to participate in all forms of lifestyle behavior. Or you could say, liberal universities allow students to participate in all forms of deviant lifestyle behavior. Based on your framework of what you think deviant is or not. But... If you take those exact same students and allow them to violate the school's political correctness code, then you might be in danger of being expelled. See, somebody has defined what absolutes are. Students can perform all forms of lifestyle behavior, but if they violate the school's political correctness code, wow, then you're on really dangerous territory. See, everyone believes truth is absolute, The question, the debate is over, who gets to define what absolute is? So you can know that every single person in your social circle, every person you work with or interact with in your family, you can know for sure that that person believes that truth is absolute because of one thing that goes on in their life, because they judge. We all do it, right? Let's just admit it. We all judge. I do it, you do it. Jesus said, judge not lest you be judged. What's the fallout of that? Well, there must be a judgment. Paul refers to that specifically in Romans chapter 1. He closes Romans 1 with an amazing statement. Absolutely fascinating. Look at what he says. These individuals, Romans 132, I'll come back and explain it in just a minute, who knowing the the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. So how do people who are apart from God know that there is a judgment of God? Now, if you remember Romans 1, reach back into what we discussed last week. We were talking about sexual behavior. Romans 1 speaks specifically to certain kinds of sexual behavior. 
Paul is writing about those individuals in Romans 1, and he's saying they're way away from God. They're apart from God, but yet he's saying they know there's a judgment. Who knowing the judgment of God? How do people know the judgment of God? How can we be certain that every person in every age knows there's a judgment? Well, the answer is in Romans chapter 2. But to get there, I've got to take you through a couple verses in Romans 1. So just bear with me. I don't want your eyes to gloss over, but this is going to move really, really quick. Romans 1.18 says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Verse 21 says this, For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God. So just made a big pronouncement here. Verse 21 is setting up verse 28. This is what we talked about last week. Skip all the way down to verse 26. It says, for this reason, God gave them over to all forms of aberrant lifestyle behavior. And he comes up with a big list that we talked about last week. So move forward with me now down to verse 28. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. Verse 29, being filled with all unrighteousness. And then there's this huge list that he gave us last week. We're not going to get into it right now. But verse 32 sums it up. And although they know the judgment of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Now hold that. He's talking about absolutes and accountability. Hold that in a holding pattern and move forward with me to Matthew 7, 12. Look at Jesus' statement. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. What do we call that, church? Golden rule. We, We paraphrase it. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Jesus is stating in the positive what Romans 1 is stating in the negative, especially Romans 2. Watch how Paul unfolds this. Romans 2, 1. Therefore, you have no excuse. Every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. See, hypocrisy in our world is defined as the violation of the golden rule. When you try start treating someone in a way other than the way that you wanted to be treated yourself, or to put it another way in, in Romans 2.1, we're guilty when we condemn for that which we do. Just picture a judge, a judge who's been nominated to the bench to uphold the rule of law, but allow that same individual to not pay Social Security taxes on the domestic help in his home. Right away, if the media sniffs that out, that becomes a media feeding frenzy because you've got an individual who says they follow the rule of law, yet they break the law. It's defined as hypocrisy. Even the most liberal media elites will say, hypocrisy is wrong. Hypocrisy is not practicing what you preach. So for those of us as believers, we understand this concept of judgment. Christians understand judgment better than anyone else. We know that judgment is real. We know that grace amends judgment. 
But if you buy into what I just presented here, if you agree to the rules of logic, you have to agree to what's been set forth in Romans 1 and 2. There is an eternal accountability for the way that we act here on planet Earth. Now, that presupposes that you believe there's an eternal judge. But Romans is literally saying, it's right there for anyone to see. So if I've lost you, if your eyes have glossed over, just hear these last two sentences. Romans 1.32, when it says, they know the judgment of God, you have to ask yourself, how can they know? The argument is absolutely brilliant. By the fact that we ourselves judge Here's what it asserts. Because God is, because God exists, we will be held accountable. And you can be sure of this by the very virtue that we hold others accountable. You can take anybody to Romans 1 and 2 and show them that exact same argument. So if you're working with individuals who pronounce judgment, whatever form of judgment you can show... This is real. This is what Scripture says. It's the golden rule in application. But the reality is this. It's not up to you to convince them. It's not up to you to sell them. It's your job to declare it. You're not here to put the Holy Spirit out of business. The Holy Spirit does the drawing. The Holy Spirit does the work. Not you. It's your responsibility to proclaim it. But the truth of this is, until men and women are willing to face the truth of Romans 1 and 2, the rejection of God, the associated behavior with it, is going to continue to go on. Romans 1 and 2 nails it, though. Here's a question before we move into the really hard ones on end times things. How do we live spiritually distinct, yet morally relevant? Well, I lead into Ephesians 4.15. And it says specifically to speak the truth in love. Matter of fact, this is the way it reads. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. Now, speaking the truth in love doesn't mean you go up to your friend. Maybe, ladies, you've got a girlfriend with a really ugly dress, and you put a smile on your face and say, wow, that's a really ugly dress. Okay, that's not speaking the truth in love, all right? That's vindictive. That's mean. That's not what Scripture's talking about. Ephesians 4 is really talking about being honest with someone about who they are in the eyes of God. Speaking the truth. It's all about salvation, Ephesians 4. So was Jesus someone who spoke the truth in love? Absolutely. Was he relevant? Was he spiritually distinct? All those things fit into that question. Jesus was all those things, yet he spoke the truth in love directly to people. You want to be spiritually distinct? Start speaking the truth in love, spiritual truth in love. Be honest with people about who they are. Let's move forward to these uh, questions about judgment and resurrection and um, specifically about last days as we're building towards this. It says uh, in the first four questions, would you clarify the resurrection and judgment? Will those who are in Christ at death have a judgment day? Do Christians face a future judgment day? Are those who died without Christ already in hell? If so, how did that happen since the judgment has not yet taken place? Um, Two specific books, I'm going to throw them on the screen and then we'll put the questions back up. Randy Elkhorn wrote an excellent book called Heaven, I referred to it two weeks ago. And then John MacArthur did this book, very recent, just hot off the presses, called The Glory of Heaven. These are two excellent resources for you to know more about heaven and about judgment. But let's come back to the questions. Clarifying the resurrection and judgment. Understand the the phrase resurrection is referring to a very specific moment 
in future time. It hasn't happened yet. The resurrection is a moment in time when the spiritual beings, the soul, is united with the new body. And I want to help you to understand that. So first we need to talk about what is a glorified body and what does that mean to us? Our human body, what we have right now here in this moment in time, is described in 1 Corinthians 15. And we're told that our human body is perishable, it's dishonorable, it's weak, all due to sin, the fact that we live in a fallen world. 1 Corinthians 15, 42, it says, So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body, meaning what we have right now. It is raised an imperishable body, meaning the future beautiful body that you're going to be given. 1 Corinthians 15 goes on to tell us what that body can do and, and a little bit about it. 1 Corinthians 15, 49. Just as we have been born the image of the... Been, have been... <clears throat> Just as we have borne the image of the earthly, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. So your family members, your friends, who are in relationship with Jesus Christ, who identified Him as their Savior, who have dead, are dead and have passed on, exist in what is known as a spirit form at this point in time. They have not yet received their resurrected body. They are a soul or spirit like the angels are spirit. There is an appearance to the angels, yet it's a description that Scripture is very clear about. They're tangible, touchable, but they exist in spirit form. Now, we're told that we will actually be given a body that is tangible and touchable. Let me explain this to you. 1 Corinthians 15 51 now. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed, for this perishable must put on the imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. So glorified bodies, future heaven bodies that you're going to have will be imperishable, meaning no decay. They will be honorable. They will be powerful. Imperishable bodies no longer suffer from sickness or weakness or cold or hunger or thirst. We're not subject to the elemental things. The new bodies will not be subject to shame. What's the very first thing that Adam did after the sin in Genesis 3? Tried to cover himself. Why? Because sin had taken over the world. And he knew immediately he was nude. And he was exposed. And so in shame, he tried to cover his weak, broken body. But that will not be the case with the new heavenly bodies. However, you will not be nude in heaven, okay? Scripture is very clear about the fact that you will be wearing white robes, Revelation 7, 9, and many places in Revelation. You're going to have not only an excellent, beautiful body, but you'll be covered in a white robe. Scripture says that many, many places. So our earthly bodies are weak. We're subject to the laws of gravity, We're subject to the laws of space and time. Even the most powerful person in this auditorium this morning, whoever that person is that's in the best shape among us physically, is decaying at this very moment, is aging. But if you hearken back and think of Michael or Gabriel 
the archangel Michael is not decaying. He's what he was 2,000 years ago is what he is today. He is an imperishable soul, an imperishable existence. So your resurrected bodies are for life in eternity. You will have form, you will have solidity to the touch, but there will be no hindrance to your travel. Scripture's pretty clear about that. Now keep that thought of your body, future, in mind when you start thinking of the judgments. And specifically, the judgments of believers versus the judgment of non-believers. There's two different judgments in Scripture. And I just need to be very clear about this. So there's, there's much confusion. But because there's two different sets of people, believers and non-believers, it makes sense there's two different judgments. So let's talk first about non-believers. Non-believers' judgment is referred to in Revelation 20. Specifically, it's called the white throne judgment. We see this, then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away. Because this is about to be a horrible moment. This is the final judgment. The judgment in which all the non-believers, all the fallen angels, and death and hell itself appear before the great white throne. Now that's one judgment. I'll come back to that in just a moment. Then there's the second judgment, which is the judgment of believers. Now, using the word judgment is probably inappropriate in this case because believers are not judged in the way that you're thinking of being judged. But let's look at the passage first. It says this in 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear, he's writing to Christians, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, at the judgment seat of Christ, believers are already forgiven. So why would we stand before a judgment seat? This specific judgment seat of Christ is called the Bema seat. The Bema seat is where you receive rewards. So the misunderstanding comes when you look at this thing, whether good or bad. This is not talking about morality, good or bad. It's not talking about sin, good or bad, because you're already saved, you're already redeemed, you're already in Christ who took his judgment for you. So what's going on with the good or bad? Good or bad applies to believers in this way. How did you spend the course of your life here on planet earth advancing the kingdom of God? Did you do things of eternal significance or did you spend your days playing video games? Not calling anybody out, you understand, okay? Just, just putting it in a framework of our modern day. How did you spend your energies here on planet Earth? What did you do to advance the kingdom? Because it's very clear. There's going to be rewards in heaven. For individuals who advance the kingdom of God, Jesus says, well done, faithful servant. Enter into the reward that's been prepared for you. It's not meaning that the others are going to get slapped down who are Christians who didn't perform. But there's a rewards system. So, Two different judgments, the Bema Seat of Christ and the White Throne Judgment. So let's come back to the White Throne Judgment because that has to do with hell and it has to do with unbelievers. And very specifically, we need to understand why is hell mentioned in the way that it is in the Bible? Because hell, this may be the first time you've ever heard this, hell is different than the lake of fire. There are two different locations. Hell is is like a holding pen. It's temporal. 
And the Catholics are associated it very much so with the concept of purgatory, which is not too far off. I want to take you to Revelation chapter 20 again so that you can see this and understand this. It says this in Revelation 20, verses 13. Death and Hades, another word for hell, gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and hell were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, in a sense, individuals who are presently in hell have already been judged because they lived their life completely apart from Jesus Christ and did not acknowledge him. So in a sense, they're already in their punishment, but not complete. So let's put it in a context we can understand. If someone in our day and age commits murder, they don't immediately get thrown into the state penitentiary. First, they're taken to the county jail. The county jail becomes the holding place until the final judgment is pronounced. The great white throne is the final judgment at which God will say, depart from me, you wicked, I never knew you. And they will be thrown into the lake of fire. It's the truth of God's word. So hell becomes this holding place. It's still a place of torment. It is not a pretty place. It's a horrible place. It was created for the devil and his angels, Scripture said. But ultimately, according to God's word, hell will be thrown in along with death, along with Satan, along with the demons, and along with those whose names are not written in the book of life. Now, on that pretty thought, let's move forward into the last day's things. Some individuals came to me after the um, 9 o'clock service and said, hey, um, my, my kids didn't want to come today because they didn't want to hear about end times things. Not many people who are under 30 or 35 really want to hear about last day's things, but you've got to see these questions first of all, and I'll give you a little framework of understanding. Every question that you're about to see came from someone under the age of 35. You really wanted to understand this. Here's the questions. It's clear that we're in a time of great distress, frequent disasters and unimaginable evil, So how do we keep a level head and not get, pardon me, freaked out about the times we're in and the fact that the Bible says it would be like this and continue to get worse? I get the idea of keeping our eyes on the facts that one day the Lord Jesus Christ is revealed, but I can't seem to get past the here and now and what's to come and how to be prepared. Next one that came along with it, what does Paul mean when he is talking about the second coming of Jesus? 2 Thessalonians 2. How can the church be raptured before Christ comes? Are we in the end times? What signs indicate the end times are approaching? Are we the last generation? Are we living in the end times? Think this one's on the heart of people? Okay. This one rose second in predominance only to the questions about homosexuality, which we talked about last week. So this is obviously an issue that's on people's minds. So I need to kind of lump them together, but yet address them independently as we move through this. So just give me a few minutes to speak into the the overarching truth. God has given us enough information in his word that we can be prepared. And that is what you are called to do, to be prepared, to be aware of the times. Scripture says there'll be signs in the heavens, meaning the sky, and there will be signs on the earth, meaning in this world that we live in. So let me start with the positive side. 
The positive side is in Joel 2.2, we're told that in the last days, the Spirit of God will be poured out upon the surface of the earth. I'm here to tell you that that happened. Acts chapter 2, an event called Pentecost. God's Spirit, in a way previously not known to man, was poured out upon the surface of the earth. And the fact that you are here today means the effect of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit is still reverberating over thousands of years. God is drawing people to himself. He's still doing it today, just like he did in Acts chapter 2. The event known as Pentecost is the unveiling of God's Spirit in calling people to himself. That's the positive side, that God's bringing people in. And we're told in Joel 2 that it would be an indicator of last day's things. Uh, I'll explain that in just a moment. Here's some very important clues that Jesus gave us to know whether or not we actually live today in the last days. This is Jesus saying this from Matthew 24. You want to know more about it? Read it yourself. More of Matthew 24 later, but here it comes. For many will come in my name, claiming, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. So just to paraphrase, Jesus said there's going to be an increase in war. There's going to be an increase in famine. There's going to be plagues and natural disasters that these are the signs of the end times. However, he gave us a warning. He said, don't be deceived. These events are only the beginning of birth pains. So why are some people so confused when they look at every single earthquake or every single political upheaval or every single attack on Israel and say, see, I knew it. We're living in the last days. Look at it. It's falling apart. Well, because of these phrases that Jesus repeated quickly, quickly, behold, I come quickly. I come soon. Well, those phrases, when Jesus said those, and especially said those in the book of Revelation, mean something different in the Greek language than what they do in the English language. When Jesus said, behold, these events must take place soon, or behold, I come quickly, means in the Greek language, when they happen, they will happen in rapid succession, meaning compressed in a very short period of time. Seven years known as the tribulation period in which everything that has been known on planet Earth will begin to crumble and fall apart. Those are the true last days, those seven years, but they're signs leading up to whether or not those last days are here or not. We're told specifically in 1 Timothy, one of the things to look for is an increase in false teaching on planet Earth. 1 Timothy 4 says this, 4.1, the Spirit clearly says that in latter times, some will abandon the faith, meaning apostasy. People will walk away from what they know to be true. Here's one clear indicator you can be watching for. If you get up tomorrow morning and you pick up the paper or you open up your laptop or your phone and you see that somebody started filing for a building permit for the temple in Jerusalem, you can pack your bags, Okay. Well, you won't need your bags, but that's a pretty clear indicator because right now the Dome of the Rock sits where the temple has to be built. But something's got to happen for that Dome of the Rock to be gone in order for the temple to be built. But we're told there will be temple worship 
that the temple will be rebuilt. So that's one of the indicators. Here's what I consider to be the most prominent sign in modern times that we are definitely in a stage that you could say we are way further along into the last days than our ancestors were. In 1948, when the nation of Israel became a nation, and perhaps you've not seen this before, but you need to understand the magnitude of what has happened since 1948. In 1948, Israel was recognized as a sovereign state, which is remarkable because that's essentially the first time that happened since 70 AD. When Jesus was here, he said that Israel will go out of existence, that Rome would come and destroy it, and literally they did in 70 AD. It was gone and known as the diaspora. Jews were sent out all over the planet, but they no longer were a nation or a people group as an individual nation. But we're told of prophecies throughout the Bible that Israel would be resurrected again, especially in the book of Ezekiel. We're told that those dry bones would get muscle and flesh on them again. They would come back to life. Now, Israel is incredibly prominent in eschatology, meaning last day's things. So it does have to come back. We're told this in the book of Isaiah 66, specific prophecy, speaking hundreds of years before Jesus. Isaiah 66, 8 Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall a land be born in one day? Shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? Why did Isaiah write that? Because God had revealed to him that Israel would go out of existence and then would come back again. It has never happened in the history of the world that a nation ceased to be a people and then came back again. The Philistines didn't go out of existence and come back. Babylon, point to it today. You can't. The Romans, it doesn't exist. Only one people group in the history of the world, and it's the very one that God said would come back. My people, the people of Israel. Why? Because they play such a prominent role in last day's things. So the Bible gives us some clear understanding of four categories that we can know whether or not we're in the end times. So if if you want to know if you're in the end times or last days, you watch for these four things. Natural signs, sociological signs, technological signs, and political signs. Natural signs. You can go to the FEMA website later today yourself, and you're going to discover that between 1991 and 2004, FEMA recorded in 13 years, in that span, 10 of the worst disasters, naturally, that our nation, the United States, has ever known in the 200 years previous to it. Now they've had to go back and rewrite the books because since 2004, things like Hurricane Sandy have occurred. God said, watch for the occurrence of these natural disasters. Three of the four largest tornado swarms ever in the history of our nation occurred within the last seven years. Is there a ramping up? Well, you can continue to look at these signs and try and understand, is this true? Is this what Jesus was speaking about? What about signs in society? Those are natural signs. Go to the FEMA website. Signs in society. Scripture says that there will be a rampant behavior of immorality in the last days. I don't know if what we're experiencing today is any different than what it was in the first century in the Greek culture. It feels like it because what we're living in, but I'm not entirely sure, but we're told that that will be ramping up. God said, here's a clear indicator that in the last days, people will become lovers of themselves. In other words, watching out for number one. I want what I want, and I want it now. 
Rather than lovers of God, they'll become lovers of themselves. Here's the third one, modern technology. Now, Daniel chapter 12 said that there would be an increase in knowledge in the last days. Daniel Daniel chapter 12, verse 4. That's something that is kind of off our radar because of the world that we live in. But if you drop back in time, 100 years, people could not imagine an increase in knowledge in the way that we are experiencing it today. We live in what's known as the information age. Knowledge is rampant among us. If you go back to the time when Daniel wrote this, people just assumed they knew everything there was to know. So is it becoming concentrated and formed into this period of time where it's much more information available? You'll have to ask yourself that question. But there's breakthroughs, it seems like, every day in technology. Here's a big one. Political signs. This is the last one we'll we'll come down on today. What's going on on the surface of the earth globally? There's There's a battle that's coming, and I'm not talking about the battle of Armageddon, but it's known in the Bible as the battle of Gog and Magog. And it is a battle that predates the tribulation period. It apparently is a trigger for the tribulation. It seems to occur before those concentrated seven years. I want to take you to a verse, first of all, Zechariah 12. It speaks specifically of a change in politics on planet Earth. It says, On that day, when all the nations of the earth are gathered against her, who is her? Israel. I will make Jerusalem an immovable rock for all the nations. All who try to move it will injure themselves. Something's going to happen politically in which the nations of the earth are going to turn against Israel and launch an attack. We're told specifically this this is going to be indicated by a birthing pain of the end times. What we see today in our lifetime is an alignment with Russia and Iran, which is spoken of in the Bible specifically in the description of the battle of Gog and Magog. I'm going to take you to the passage from Ezekiel 38 and show it to you so that you understand this battle of Gog and Magog. Hear these phrases. Gog is a man. Magog is a territory. Today we call it Russia, or it's what's called in the Bible the bearer of the north. Okay? The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. And prophesy against him and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, meaning the ruler of Russia, chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. And I will turn you about and put hooks in your jaws, and I will bring you out and all your army, horses and horsemen, all of them clothed in full armor, a great host, all of them with buckler and shield, wielding swords. Verse 5 should really catch your attention. Persia, Cush, and put are with them, all of them with shield and helmet, meaning this is a massive army. Where is Persia? Persia is what we call Iran today. Only in the Bible, Persia was a much, much bigger territory encompassing Turkey and Syria. But what about these other two, Cush and Put? Cush in the Bible is known as North Africa. Everything from Kenya northward, not just the northern tip, but the northern half of Africa. What about this other region known as Put? This is the region of all the people east of the Red Sea. So, get a little compass out next time you're home, pull a map out, and draw a circle. And start in North Africa, 
over in the region of Niger, come all the way across the Mediterranean, all the way to Iran, up to Syria and Turkey, and then realize this is talking about Russia. We're talking about a massive army which is going to launch an assault against Israel. Do we live in a day and age in which Iran wants to annihilate Israel? Yes. Does Iran want to annihilate the United States? They could. Are there people groups within that region who want to see them and us destroyed? Yes. Are people looking for a one world leader today? I'll let you answer that one. Is there a potential for a global currency? See, these are the indicators Scripture talks about. These are just a few of the signs. You want to know more? Look at the Revelation study that I did with the church about two and a half years ago. I think it'll give you a lot more information, especially the last half of the Revelation study. I don't share these things with you to scare you, but rather the questions have been asked, and I think we've answered them in a very factual way. Here's a verse that we can take with us when we go out the door this morning. And I think it's just a very comforting, encouraging passage. 2 Thessalonians 2.1. And it's talking about our being gathered together to the Lord. It's this verse. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. There's a Greek word that's in your notes this morning that refers to the words gathered together. It's espunagoge, kind of a big $10 word, but here's what it means. A collection or an assembly of people. It was specifically used in the Greek world of the gathering of Christians together to worship the Lord. It was a a phrase that became an attractional point for the church. So when we're told about this gathering together, the, the rapture or the taking away or the resurrection, at some point... We will be all together, believers who have gone on before us, those of us who still remain, those yet to be born, and we will be gathered together for this worshiping of the great I am. Looking forward to that day. Not trying to dwell too much on these end times things, but being aware of them. Can God kick the can down the road 500 years? Absolutely. Everybody under 35 loves to hear that. God can do whatever he wants. But we see the indicators, and so we're aware of them. Well, we take these things out the door with us this morning because we want to be aware. That's why we've addressed the question. So let me pray that way to close this out with you. Heavenly Father, we come into uh, this period of time where we're about to leave. We're going to pick up our keys and our Bibles and our purses and our belongings and take them with us. I pray that you would allow us to take with us the things that we have learned from you where your word has spoken truth and life and has made application to us. God, help us not to quickly forget it, but to use it in our conversations today and throughout the course of this week. We would ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.